Well, as I said before, it's a treat to be with you. Uh, it's one of those things where every morning on Sundays when Uptown Church gathers, there are a few churches that are gathering different parts of the world and different parts of the region that I feel like we're kind of all gathering together in a way because we're all part of uh, even just what God's doing in Martinsville. Of course, if you begin to think about it, uh, the church is gathering all over the world. And we're all part of the same gospel, the same kingdom of God. But I do want to greet you again. Uh, and I have met most of you, but not all of you. So my name's Rob Connolly. I'm one of the pastors of Uptown Church Martinsville. Uh, and uh, before we get started with our text, you can go ahead and turn there. It's Ephesians chapter 2, starting in, in verse 11. And as you're turning, uh, I just want to remind you again of our history together. It was March 2014, the first time I came to visit with you guys. And it was similar to this Sunday in that Justin was going to be gone and he was looking for someone to share God's word with you. I think he was going to visit some missionary friends in China that week, if I, if I recall. Um, what you didn't know at that time is that I was really praying about whether God would have me move back to my hometown of Martinsville and start a gospel-centered church there. You had no idea. I was just a, a guy coming to preach. Um, and I would encourage you that God used you to encourage and affirm me in what the role I would have might be in that church. It was an opportunity for me to preach for the first time in seven years. It was an opportunity for me to study God's word in, in preparation to preach. It was an opportunity for me to not just sit in the seminary classroom and study God's word, but to think about how to help other Christ followers apply God's word. And frankly, it brought that whole part of me alive in preparing to be with you guys. And, and even further, just being with you and sharing God's word with you and interacting with some of you after that, that sermon, after that service, I can just tell you that God used you in a mighty way in my life. So I'm really grateful for you. I'm probably going to get teary now. But um, truly and truly, you guys are like family to me. Um, and I did want to say amen. That's the gospel. I did want to say uh, I'd love to stick around afterwards and maybe go to lunch with anybody who'd like to, and we can do more sort of what's going on in the life of Uptown Church, um, and we do have some updates coming your way in the next couple, three weeks anyway, but I'd love to fellowship with some of you more afterwards. Uh, but I do want you to know, I do want you to be thinking about the fact that uh, the saints that are Uptown Church Martinsville are gathered right now, and they're studying John chapter 6, and we're studying in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, Rich also sends his greetings. Brother Rich, it's a blessing to have two pastors in one congregation and uh, allows me to be able to do this and him to be able to be there. But our text this morning, as I said earlier, is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And in this text out of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, we're going to see three main things. And I don't know if you guys typically take notes or if you do, here are the three things you want to write down, because these are the three things we want to make sure we get out of this text. The first thing is, we were once far off, but now we are brought near. We were once far off, but now we are brought near. Second, Christ brings peace because he himself is our peace. So we were once far off, but now are brought near. Christ brings peace because he himself is our peace. 
And thirdly, because of Christ having brought us together in the gospel, we can have oneness as the church. Because Christ has brought us together in the gospel, we can have oneness as the church. Now, Paul is teaching that the gospel not only saves us from our sins, and that's making peace between us and God, but the gospel also makes peace, an ultimate, abiding, forever peace possible between humans. That's remarkable. Everybody wants peace, right? And I would submit to you, as, as uh, you said earlier this morning, uh, well, our country needs prayer. Our world needs prayer. Why is that? Because they are aiming to find peace in places it cannot ultimately be found. In education. In, oh, I could name a bunch of things. You guys get the point. True, abiding, forever peace can only be found in the person of Jesus and in the gospel. So I'm going to read, actually, the entire second chapter of the book of Ephesians. I thought you guys would get a chuckle out of knowing that we did these uh, verses in four sermons when we went through Ephesians. I'm not going to be here with you for like three hours, I promise. Uh, don't worry. But I do want to read uh, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 and to give us a good running start into the verses we're focusing on this morning, okay? And again, he's writing to the church. So these are believers that are reading this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, that's an important two words in the Bible, by the way, the first two words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. 
Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Amen. Now, if you were paying attention, you realize that we could have a three-hour sermon on all of that. If we even attempted to address all of the important ideas that are in that text, we would be here till at least 2.30 or 3. Um, that's not my goal this morning as we study this together. Actually, I hope that as we finish up, you'll be thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon later, and you'll think, I need to go back and study that more. But I, I want to give you just a... a 60-second brief background on the book of Ephesians to make sure we're tracking together as to what's going on here. I don't know where everybody is on your understanding of the book of Ephesians, but this is simply a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, which is a city in modern-day Turkey. And his relationship with the church there in that city was very intimate. He had been one of the main persons God used to start that church. He had had multiple long interactions with them. He actually was there for two straight years living amongst them, equipping them, encouraging them in the gospel. And it's after that period that he writes this letter to them. They were like family to him. It's kind of like the way I feel about you guys in some way. But the reality is, there is a clear purpose in Paul's writing the letter. And if we miss that purpose, we'll likely miss what God has for us out of this text this morning. And that purpose is very simple. Um, his purpose is twofold. First, to clarify the gospel so that they could believe it and live it and to explain what the church is so that they could be it. In other words, he was writing them this letter so that they could believe the gospel and be the church. So our text begins there in verse 11 with that, therefore. So look with me down at verse 11. You've got a therefore, and whenever we're studying the word of God, really in any place in the English language, you want to know what the therefore is there for. Right? There's a purpose for that word being there, and it points us to the portion of text that comes just before it. That's why I wanted to read those first 10 verses, okay? So just sort of glance down with me at the first 10 verses of chapter 2 while I summarize it. And as I'm saying these things, they should pop off the page to you, okay? We're all dead in sin, separated from God. It's the first thing you see there. If we are in Christ, we are made alive in Him. We're not made alive by our good works, but through faith by God's grace to us, His undeserved love for us. And because of His having paid the price for our sin, because He has made us who were once dead now alive, we can live for Him and we can do the good works for which He created us. Namely, to bring God glory and to fill the earth with the worship of Him. And then we get to the therefore. So based on those things that we've just spoken about, that Paul's just taught us, Paul says, remember that you, this is verse 11, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, the Jews had believed that they were superior to non-Jews. And unfortunately, this carried over into the church. 
See, the Jews were the sons of Abraham. They were the inheritors of God's promises. You can write down Genesis 12 and read that later as part of your study. Genesis 12. They had been brought out of slavery in Pharaoh's Egypt. They had been given the promised land. They alone had the law which God had given to Moses. And they had their religion. Their unique religion, which included the sacrifices that temporarily atoned for their sin. Uh, the dietary restrictions. They couldn't eat pork or shellfish. Other things as well. And then circumcision, which was to set them apart physically from other nations as belonging to God. Now, that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 11. Those who were called the circumcision were those Jewish believers who looked down on the Gentile believers who were called the uncircumcision. Now, this could get just really confusing. At some point, you just kind of have to try to shake the cobwebs out of your head. Just look at all of this. But if you substitute Gentile believer everywhere you see uncircumcision in this passage, and then uh, do the opposite, substitute Jewish believer everywhere you see the circumcision, that'll clear things up for you. What we have here is the Jews who had become Christians are looking down on their non-Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ as not being fully Christian because they hadn't become Jewish first. This is a very important issue when we ask the question, what is the gospel? Is there anything that we must do in order to earn God's salvation? Now, like I said earlier, the non-Jews were simply not a part of the promises of God in the idea of the Jews. And that, unfortunately, in their minds carried over to what Christ has done. Because the, the Jewish believers were convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and he had come to save and redeem, but they just weren't sure that the Gentiles who hadn't become Jews first were included. So you can imagine if we were to maybe pass out several sheets of uh, pieces of paper that either had a one or a two on them, and we had the same number of each number, and then I made everybody who was a number two stand up, and I said, okay, you guys are going to go in there because you're Gentile Christians, not Jewish Christians. And then the next time we gather, we'd prefer that you just stay in that room. Well, that's not going to be very unifying, is it? And that's essentially what's going on in the church at Ephesus and in many of the early churches. Because there was this confusion. We find out later that Paul has to confront Peter for not eating with the Gentile believers. You won't even have fellowship with them because you think they're unclean. Have you not missed the point of the gospel? Quite the controversy. Is there anything that one must do to earn God's salvation, including the Jewish religion? Well, Paul rejects that idea directly. And here we have it. I mean, he, is, he has just gotten through explaining that there are no works that any man can do. Even though we are created for good works, the works are not what save us. Once we're saved, we're saved into good works. And then he says, and this is consistent with everything. By the way, this actually translates to your life, church. You know that whole Jew, non-Jew thing you have going on? Well, that's why I'm telling you this. That you would believe the gospel and understand it clearly. Notice in verse 11, he says that the group circumcision has been made in the flesh by hands. All he's saying there Made in the flesh by hands is a way of saying, and sort of like that way that you know what he's saying, but he's kind of playing a little bit, that the circumcision is nothing but a work. Works which cannot save. So, 
He's saying, just because you're of the circumcision, just because you're Jewish, that does not save you. It is the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross alone that can save you. And He's reminding all of them, really, of the fact that uh, they were without Christ. Although it looks as though He's mostly talking to the Gentile believers. Now, if you go back and read those first ten verses, you'll realize that He's actually talking to all of them. And my guess is, as it is when I read something, at the first reading, and it would have been very similar to this gathering we had this morning, you know, the letter from Paul has come. We're going to gather together and we're going to read it. Imagine reading the letter from Paul for the first time as the church at Ephesus. How exciting that would be. And wait a minute, he's telling us we're heretics, that we don't understand the gospel. Let's read it again. Sometimes we have to read it multiple times. Recently, I I mentioned the the saints in Martinsville are in John 6. Well, we're going through the Gospel of John just as we went through the letter of Ephesians. When we got to chapter 3, we came upon that verse that we in this country and our culture know very well, John 3.16. And the reality is I would encourage you to do what we did as a church not that long ago. Read it again for the first time. Read it again for the first time because I would guarantee you if you've never read it, with the verses that go before it, you've never understood it properly. So here we come to something that's really going to push on these people. And really it ought to push on us. Because just like the Jewish Christians, we tend to create man-made religion and forget the gospel. We'll accept you into our church as soon as you clean yourself up. I'm just saying that because I can do that. I know that that's what we as broken humans do. We miss the point of the gospel. We can't clean ourselves up. None of us, even if we look clean on the outside. I'd encourage you to write uh, Ephesians 4.18 and Colossians 1.21 down for your study later. Again, I can't preach a three-hour sermon, so I'm going to give you eight hours of homework. Ephesians 4.18 and Colossians 1.21 What you'll find in those passages is the same word that in the Greek comes out alien in the New King James Version, which is the version I'm reading from this morning. You may have alienated from in yours or excluded from there. The fact of the matter is that there's only three places in the entire New Testament that this Greek word shows up, and I've given you the other two to study later. Now, anything being described by this Greek word is separated from, excluded from, and not benefited by a source of identity. So, in other words, if someone were to come into this place and they were to be an illegal immigrant, okay, I know that's controversial. I'm not going to give you my opinion about that or anything. Don't worry. The point is, there would be a certain degree to which that person would not have the same benefits living in the United States that a citizen has. And again, I know I'm dancing around the controversy a bit, but the point I'm trying to make to you is that this Greek word is right there at the heart of that controversy. And by the way, I would encourage you to read this passage and think about that issue too. But in this case, Paul is essentially acknowledging what the Jewish believers are saying. Yeah, apart from Christ, the Gentile believers are aliens. They are separated from God. They have no connection apart from Christ to the promises of God. It's kind of like saying you're wrong, but you're right. Now let's figure out how that works. Hold on. 
Paul says they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's strong talk, right? And by the way, uh, this is a side note. If anyone ever wants to know, are there aliens in the Bible? Here it is, Ephesians 2. Probably not what they're looking for, but there are aliens in Ephesians 2. It's just us. We're the aliens. Because we are separated from God. We are those who are not connected to the promises of God apart from Christ. And then he gets to 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Everyone is in the same boat. The same problem. We're separated from God by our sin. The same solution. The blood of Christ. And the same result. We are saved out of our sin and into the church and onto God's mission field to take the gospel everywhere we go. It does not matter who you are. We're all in the same situation. The gospel is needed by all, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now again, I've already asked you to write down Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I want you to also write down Acts, Acts chapter 2, 36 through 39. I'm just going to read Genesis 12 and a little, just a bit of it in Acts 2. And this promise in Genesis 12 is ironically the very promise that the Jewish Christians were forgetting. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Acts 2, from Peter's sermon on Pentecost, to all those gathered, they were gathered from all over the Mediterranean world in Acts 2, starting in 38, but I want you to read 36 to 39 later. And Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call this moment at Pentecost where the tongue comes upon those who were the apostles and they speak not knowing their languages into the languages of all these people it is a parallel from the tower of Babel where separation has to happen because of idolatry and then things are being put back together with the languages at the day of Pentecost by the way if you've never studied the Bible as one story it'll blow your mind captivates my imagination i can't get enough of it now what does all of this mean for us here today and if you'll notice we still have two points we haven't even gotten to two points won't be three hours i promise but first of all we need to be reminded that we are all the gentiles we are all separated from god apart from the work of christ so i want us to take just a moment and reflect i want us to reflect by asking ourselves a question i'm going to do this with you Am I far off from God or am I brought near? Am I far off from God or am I brought near? How can you know for sure? I really want us to take 30 seconds. It's going to be 30 seconds of silence here. I want you to ask that question of yourself. Am I far off from God or brought near? Give some time for the answer to come. 30 seconds.
Now, if you're like me, you want to be brought near. Even before I was, I wanted to be brought near. I would ask you to think through what kind of things came to your mind. Ultimately, if anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ came to your mind, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but it may mean you need to be clear on what the gospel is. Now, this is a challenge to my own heart. You can imagine being a pastor, people tend to think more highly of you than they ought. The reality is things like being a pastor, sharing a sermon, or church attendance, or serving in the church in some way, being a good person, helping others, these things cannot save us. So if when we get down to it, and we're meditating on this question of, am I brought near, if our good works are what come up in our minds, that should be a warning. Only God knows your heart. But I would encourage you not to look away from that question. And that every day of your life, even if you're sure that you're in Christ, you rejoice in the fact that the blood of Jesus wells up in your spirit and you know that you're in Christ and a new creation. Because Paul would say that those good works may be evidence of the gospel at work, but they are not the essence of the gospel at work. Now, our first point from 11 through 13 is that we were once far off, but are now brought near. The second point coming from verses 14 through 18 is that Christ brings peace because he himself is our peace. Let's read 14. I'll read it. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of of separation. Paul is showing that those who are in Christ are now one because Jesus is our peace. We've already talked about the dividing line in the church at Ephesus was primarily ethnic. It was Jewish believer and non-Jewish believer. And by the way, the whole city was full of different nations. That has to do with the context of the Roman Empire. You can study that on your own. I don't know what the dividing lines are here in Rockfish Valley. I don't. One of the advantages of moving back to your hometown is that you have some idea, at least, where people are divided. In Martinsville, it's things like skin color, and generational division, and things like education, um, how much money you make. Those are kind of the big ones in Martinsville. Um, And you can actually sort of look at the different churches in the community and say, oh, that's for those kind of people. I'm excited that that's not the way Uptown Church is growing. If you come in and you look around, there's people that normally don't belong together on Sunday morning, which is backwards because they do belong together. We're actually starting to see that take root. It gives me great joy to see that happening. But I don't know what the division is here in this, in this place, in this area. Um, I have no idea. Maybe it's a, a family feud kind of thing or a past hurts kind of thing or the haves and the have-nots. I have no idea. I have no idea what it is or what they are. But I can tell you this. They're nothing compared to the gospel. If there's someone in in this community that has hurt you and you're a a Christ follower, I would encourage you. You've been forgiven everything. Now you can forgive anything. Christ has in his physical death and resurrection put to death even that division that the law of God misunderstood clearly reinforced that the Jews were good and the Gentiles were bad. Looking at 15, 16, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, 
so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The way that Israel looked down on non-Jews as less than human, which we see the Jewish believers still doing to the Gentile believers in the church, is nothing less than mocking the gospel. And look, the two opposing groups, the ones who did not get along, the ones who had a reason not to hang together, are now one. This is a big deal. People cry out for peace in our nation, in our world. There is only one source of peace. Jesus is our peace. Whatever divisions we have, no matter how deep or how historically verifiable or how right we might be in our part of it, they must be put to death. And they are put to death in the gospel, which can unite anyone. Let's look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. We've seen that we were once far off, but now are brought near. We've seen that Christ brings peace because He Himself is our peace. And third and finally, we see that because of Christ, having brought us together in the Gospel, we can have oneness in the church. Oneness in the church. It's not just some abstract, hypothetical, unity idea. It's theologically true. One of the best statements anyone ever said to me it was one of my seminary professors. He said, I want to encourage you all to grow in your ability to be who you already are in Christ. In other words, theologically, I am blameless before God. I don't live blameless. But because I am theologically blameless before God, I am motivated to live blameless before God. Just as we are one theologically as the church, we should strive to actually live that way. And By the way, this is a preview. You think I'm just going to make you study this chapter. Check out chapter 3. I'm getting ahead of myself. I can't do that. I just get a little excited, guys. Now, let's look at 19. Now, therefore, again, there's another therefore. So this is building, right? That's why I want us to have the whole second chapter in mind. Therefore, because of all these other things, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He uses citizenship and household language to help us get this. I don't know about you guys, but I've always loved the Olympics. I've always loved the opening and closing ceremonies. There are the nations. These people look different. They have different culture. They have different flags. Their jersey things are so different. It sort of captivates the imagination. I can't help but think about what the final gathering will be. All the nations will be represented. Read the end of the book. It's fantastic. And if you have trouble getting up in the morning, that'll help you. But he uses these word pictures to help us get this idea that whoever is in Christ is family. I've traveled lots of places, the Ukraine, Haiti, Mexico, France, and when you meet somebody who's in Christ, you love each other. You just do, even if you don't even know what they're saying. 
Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now he switches to a construction analogy. And he's going to finish this section with this construction analogy, okay? Now, I want you to think about what he means by apostles and prophets. If you're like me, you tend to read words like that and check out and say, those are old dead guys. I'm not talking about me. Well, there is a sense in which the capital A apostles and the capital P prophets are intended to be read into what he is saying. But I think it's very clear that what he is talking about is that it's actually the church who is making known the gospel that is the foundation for the church. Now, I want you to think about that. That's what you call cyclical thinking, except not in the bad way. In this case, the church is united in the gospel, and by proclaiming that, and by the Spirit moving and, and, and discussing among the nations what that looks like and becoming one, people look at that and they say, there's something to this. And they become part of the church. And the cycle begins again. And if you read chapter 3, I really want you to do that after you do these other things. You'll see Paul is arguing for exactly that. But how many of you, by show of hands, think of yourself as an apostle or a prophet? Go ahead, raise your hand if you think of yourself as an apostle or a prophet. Some of you are trying to touch the floor. Oh, no. Right? For one thing, it's scary, right? I don't want a title. But an apostle, little a apostle, is anyone who is sent with an important message. Do you have an important message to share? Well, if you're in Christ, you sure do. And likewise, a a little p prophet is anyone who shares God's word with another. Suddenly you start to see yourself in that a little bit, don't you? And by the way, it's going to ruin your life. In a good way, that's a good thing. Once you realize that God has sown the seed of the gospel in you in such a way that you can't keep it to yourself, You'll never be the same. Now, this passage is telling us that we're to see ourselves not in the ultimate sense as the foundation of the new doctrine being revealed, but in the revelation of who Jesus is, what the gospel is, and how it is that we're the church. And he continues on this construction word picture here. He says the church is built on the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Let's not miss that. Ultimately, the story, Genesis to Revelation, we call it the Bible, the story has one main character. His name is Jesus. We ought not read it like we do our yearbooks, looking through the index to find the pages that we're on. Jesus Christ is the main character of the Bible, and He is the chief cornerstone of the church because only He can be. The chief cornerstone. Now, we think of the cornerstone in modern construction as sort of like that ornamental block in the corner and it's got an inscription on it. I don't know if this building has such a cornerstone or not, but many do. That's actually not the construction idea that's in view here. It's interesting. Try to imagine a single piece of material that spans the most crucial part of the building as far as what bears weight. I don't know, some of you might be in construction and have some kind of engineering background or have 
paid attention to the way buildings are built. You can sort of imagine this, right? Uh, the rest of the building materials depend upon that one span, that one piece of something, not only for the weight to rest on it, but to be held together by it. That is what Jesus is to the church. You take Jesus out of this room, we're just a bunch of sinners. And we'll probably get to fighting pretty quick. Now, there's a challenge in this for us. If we set out to just play church or do church or just gather because it's what we always do or whatever it may be, and this is human nature, this is what we all tend to do, and Jesus Christ is not the cornerstone that binds us together at our very core, not only will we miss the point, but we will be practicing false religion. And the world will look at us and say, we don't want that. And I think this is why many in our culture would say the church is not a vehicle for peace. Because we've forgotten the gospel as the church. We're more concerned about what makes us comfortable for an hour a week or whatever it may be. We're not thinking about the fact that we have been made new in the gospel. Maybe it's because some of us haven't. Now, I know I get the privilege of ruffling feathers because I get to leave this afternoon. But I assure you, this is the gospel. And this is what hit me one day, that I had spent most of my childhood and young adulthood playing church and missing the point. But we are not the church if the real Jesus, the one who took on false religion, who angered the religious people of his day, who turned over the tables in the temple, talk about controversy, and who ultimately paid the price for our sins to make us one in him, if he is not the cornerstone of who we are as the church, then we're not the church. Paul finishes this section by finishing in the construction analogy in 21 and 22, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now these last two verses are saying something specific to us. And if I haven't been offensive yet, I'm going to be now. It is impossible to go to church. It is literally impossible to go to church. You can't meet at the church but you can meet as the church. The church is us. The church is the people of God. It's not a building. It's not a meeting. It's not an event. And if we misunderstand that, we can't be the church because we think the church is the building. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to start saying it differently, but maybe we ought to consider it. There's such a thing as passive teaching. I grew up going to church. We're going to meet them at the church. Well, it turns out they were the church. It took me a while to change the way I viewed the world in light of Scripture. And some of it was because I grew up saying it the wrong way. And it's confusing. But Paul says that having been put together, fitted 
together. We are a holy temple in the Lord. Used to be the temple was the building. Right? There are two temples in Jewish history. The one that Solomon built and the one that was rebuilt by Nehemiah which was eventually destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Did God cease to interact with humanity in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed? No, because the church was the temple at that point. That's us. We, the church, are being built together for a dwelling place of God. Have you ever thought of yourself as a dwelling place of God? And it's only impossible to go to church. I mean, I, I say that knowing that's how we all say it. It's impossible to go to church because we are the church. And God doesn't just meet us in this place because it's this place. He meets us in this place because we're here together. It is the gathering of the church. This carpet is not sacred. It's just not. It's nice. But if it detracts from our understanding of who we are as the church, we should tear it up. Now, I want you to think about this. If we can't go to church, theologically, then how is it we invite people to church? Maybe instead of inviting people to church, we should invite them to dinner. We should invite them for coffee. We should invite them to hang out. We should invite ourselves over to help them do something around their house. We should... Maybe just invite them to follow Jesus with us. There are some people who live in this valley, I promise you, who do not want to walk through those doors on a Sunday morning. And they have reasons, some of them legitimate maybe. Do they somehow not matter to God because of that? And if the only way we have to reach them is to say, well, here's an invite card, please come on Sunday. If that's the only way that we're there to reach them, then we've missed them, haven't we? And once we begin to think of the church as who we are, it's a lot easier to think about inviting them to be the church with us than inviting them to come to church. Now, whatever boundary it is that you fear with regard to sharing your faith, I get it. It's terrifying. You don't have to have a theological degree to get the gospel right. It's God's grace to us. We don't deserve it. Jesus did it. Right? The sermon may be 45 minutes, but the gospel is three seconds. Okay? And if you've been forgiven everything, there are no boundaries that you can't cross. You have nothing to risk. You guys, you have nothing to lose. You know what's happening when you die, so even if it gets that out of hand, that's not really a concern. God loves every person in your life, even the ones that don't love him. Maybe even the ones that don't love you. So here we come to this idea of Jesus himself being our peace. And what that means for the church is not only unity amongst us who are the church together, but an opportunity, an on-ramp to peace with every human being with whom we come in contact. Now what would it be like if the people in this room lived this out in a radical way in this valley? It'd get turned upside down for Jesus, wouldn't it? Believe me, I know what I just said. And I know the challenge that lives right there in your head right now. I moved home. I can't go buy gas 
without somebody wanting to talk to me and find out why I moved home. And I'm not going to lie to them. I'm starting a church. Well, what's that all about? Well, literally every time I go out of my house, just about, I'm having a gospel conversation. It's forced upon me. Whether I like it or not, and some days I don't. Just keeping it real. But the reality is that I'm the better for it. That my faith has been strengthened by living exposed as a believer in Jesus in my own hometown. And I would encourage you that Christ is calling you to nothing less. That He's already made the peace because He is the peace. And you are the little A apostles and the little P prophets. So what we've seen hopefully this morning from Ephesians 2 is that we were once far off but now are brought near. That Christ brings peace because He Himself is our peace. And that Christ has brought us together in the Gospel so that we can be one as the church. I'm going to be up here during the last song. If you'd like to chat or like to pray together, we'd love to do that. Let's pray right now. God, we thank You for Your incredible love for us that has broken down all the dividing lines. There is no human division that is not destroyed by the gospel ultimately i pray we would be a living and breathing embodiment embodiment of that truth god help us to live it out help us to be people of forgiveness people of reconciliation in this valley and to the ends of the earth pray this in your name jesus amen